2023 was a record-breaking, history-making, dramatic year of racing in Formula One. And we heard about it all here on F1 Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone, it's Tom Clarkson here, and this is the best of F1 Beyond the Grid 2023. Whether you've listened to every episode this year, or you're joining the Beyond the Grid team for the very first time, Welcome, it's great to have you with us. F1 stars live life at 200 miles an hour, and this podcast is where they slow down and open up. Every week, you'll hear an exclusive, in-depth interview with one of the sport's biggest names. It could be a current driver, a legendary champion, an engineering genius, or a big team boss. You'll hear the people you've seen on screen talking in a unique way, telling stories, sharing memories and revealing things about themselves and about Formula One. Those are the kinds of moments we're going to be hearing in this episode. You'll hear from some of the current stars like Charles Leclerc, Pierre Gasly and Oscar Piastri and some legends from the past like Alain Prost and Sir Jackie Stewart. All of these clips are taken from feature-length shows and you can find links to those in the description to this episode if you'd like to listen to some more. So let's get started. Red Bull and Max Verstappen completely obliterated their opponents in 2023, rewriting the history books with one of the most dominant cars Formula One has ever seen. The team won 21 of the 22 races, including a record-breaking 10 in a row for Max Verstappen as he stormed to a third consecutive driver's crown. So we thought we'd take you inside the mind of the genius who designed their winning machine, the RB19. Chief Technical Officer Adrian Newey has now won 12 Constructors titles in a glittering career, and it's clear to see how he became one of the most successful F1 designers of all time. When I was about 8 to 10, then I'd buy these Tamiya 12-scale models. Um, the first one was a 1967 30s Honda, and then the second one was a, a Hill Lotus. And, and those 12-scale models were, were great, actually, because... All the parts are labelled, front upright or front top wishbone or whatever. So you got the terminology. In assembling them, you, you started to understand how the chassis side of the, the car works in terms of suspension articulated, and it's a monocoque that bolts for an engine that bolts for a gearbox, that sort of thing. But by the time I was about 11, I was a bit... I started to become bored with building effectively other people's designs. So I, I started sketching my own designs, and then used my, my dad's workshop to make the fold up bits of aluminium and make bits of fiberglass and so forth to, to create these 12 scale models. The, the bits I couldn't make, like the tyres the and engine really, I would sort of cannibalise off the old models. But I think the, the key part of that is there's this old thing, is it the 5,000 hour rule that to become... 10,000 hours. 10,000, yeah. sorry. Harder than that. Harder than that. <laughs> I, th- I probably did do, probably exceeded those 10,000 hours in those sort of long, boring summer holidays where I would kind of, as I say, sketch away and then make it. And whilst, of course, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, I think the, the practice of sketching and then turning that into a 3D object was great practice from a very young age. Now, can we talk about the drawing board, right? Famously, you still use a drawing board when CAD is ubiquitous in, in Formula One. What are the advantages of the board? The pen and paper, if you like. 
<laughs> that I'm a dinosaur and it suits me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's, quite, it's extraordinary how you still use that and yet you are still so current as well. For me, it's, it's CAD or a drawing board. It's, it's a way of getting ideas in your head down into a medium that can be developed from. Nowadays, of course, if it's aerodynamic, I'll look at the CFD, the Computational Fluid Dynamics, which is aerodynamics on computer, which is an amazing tool that really didn't reach maturity in Form 1 until late 90s. So I will look at the CFD, I'll sketch from that, I'll sketch some ideas, and then draw something. Now, I use a drawing board because, to me, it's, it's the language that I'm most comfortable and most fluent in. If I tried to use a CAD, I feel I would never be as fluent in it. I, I, I will spend too much time thinking about how to operate it and not just drawing naturally, if you like, subconsciously. And this probably stems actually back to those formative years of sketching models and making them. I, could, I seem to have a, a good ability to be able to visualise something in 3D and then put it down onto paper in 2D. While many people were able to predict Red Bull's dominance after the first few races, McLaren ending the year as their most consistent challenger was completely unexpected. The team took just 17 points from the opening eight Grand Prix, but after bringing updates to Austria, the team never looked back, as Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri picked up nine podiums between them. When I caught up with team principal Andrea Stella and asked him about the culture he's creating at McLaren, their miraculous transformation in 2023 doesn't seem so surprising. I think if you want to be part of uh, our journey, uh, something we state very clearly at McLaren is you need to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because this journey is necessarily going to be uncomfortable. But somehow it's for us, especially in a leadership positions, to create the conditions for this discomfort to be enjoyable. So what does 2024 look like for the team? So in 2024, we will see what we are able to do in terms of uh, continuing with the development of the car. We will have, uh, and we already have in fairness, a full exploitation of the infrastructure that came to fruition, wind tunnel, simulator, uh, manufacturing facilities, as we have already said uh, repeatedly in the past. And then uh, we definitely wanted to work on this seniority element, bringing what we call horsepower to the team. We want to compete with Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari. It's in itself is a daunting mission and we need to be well equipped. As McLaren's senior driver for the first time in his career, Lando Norris had more expectation on his shoulders than ever before. And Lando really stepped up to the challenge, enjoying his most successful year in Formula One so far, with a personal best 205 points to his name. That might be partly thanks to a new approach in dealing with pressure. I've always been quite an introverted kind of guy, not the best with crowds and people, as much as uh, it sounds like probably the opposite of how, how you have to be in Formula One. I want to be the best in the world. I want to prove to people, but I've never had the mentality or the, I don't know, the confidence to have to say that. But do I have to do anything to go over the top and show that and prove it? I don't think so. You know, you have a lot of people who say, you know, you've got to be brutal and you've got to have this mentality and that and this and whatever. But I just don't think it's true at all. I think um, you just got to get in the car and do the best you can. If people say, I don't look like I have the right mentality or I don't look aggressive enough, blah, blah, blah. 
that's just their opinion in the end of the day. Do you look at what's written and said about you? All the time. <laughs> do you really? No, I, yeah, yeah, I do. You do actually look. No, I do. I love it. I love it. I love reading all the bad things. <laughs> Are you actually being serious? Do you like, read? I guess 2019, 2020, like I would read something and I'd be like, why has this person said this or done that? Like um, I almost cared too much about what people think. And you have to learn to uh, to listen to the people that you respect, understand what people are saying but at the same time when you know someone has no idea about something or just says it simply because they're idiots or they've got nothing else to do that's positive you know like i don't i don't get why people want to waste time of their life their one life that they live why people even want to spend time doing these things you know fighting bad stuff and trying to find bad things and make bad situations i i got to a point now where i, I really enjoy seeing what people write about me um, of course, I love the good things and I, it's great to read at times. Like I've just learned to laugh and make fun of the bad things because I just feel sorry for the person who's actually had to come up with that stuff in the first place, that that's um, brought amusement to them and they think that's like a, I don't know. Do, do you use the negativity as a source of motivation or do you just ignore it? I mainly try to ignore it. Like I, I, I guess I read it so I don't completely ignore it, but I ignore the, the impact or the effect that it has on, on me. But I am—I really am a person who cares a lot about what people think and I never want to look bad or say the wrong thing. And I feel like I'm always very honest with things. And therefore, some, sometimes I say things that, not that I shouldn't, but things that are just true and genuine. We just, we live in a world now more and more where, I don't know, you just have to say things that everyone agrees with. People can't have just an opinion to them. It has to be something that uh, every human on earth has to agree with. And if it's not something like that, then there are people that are going to say that uh, you're disrespectful and blah, blah, blah. But I just try to get on with my life and I say it because that's my opinion. And they can just agree with it or disagree with it and move on from that. And what about Oscar Piastri? Oscar Piastri is on his way to victory in Formula One in his rookie season at his 17th Grand Prix weekend. Oscar Piastri has done the job brilliantly. The Australian driver will see the chequered flag first. Oscar Piastri wins the sprint to take McLaren to the top step once again. Just how sensational was his rookie year in Formula One? The Australian really played his part in McLaren's turnaround, taking his first podiums, outperforming Lando on many occasions, and even taking that F1 sprint victory in Qatar. I was fascinated to hear that, like Lewis Hamilton and Esteban Ocon, his motorsport career actually began with remote control car racing. Because I raced initially were one eight scale, and then I went to uh, one ten scale. Formula One cars or rally no, cars? No, so or? they look like they look like touring cars in a way. I think they do have Formula One cars, but like the let's say the pinnacle of remote control car racing is like touring cars, and and they're they're quick. You know, they go up to probably one hundred and ten kilometers an hour on on the straight oh, wow. top speed, and and the acceleration uh, is insane and of course they only weigh a kilo and a half or something so it's you know they're pretty impressive pieces of, of kit and you stand on like a, a driver stand with your radio and obviously you control it from that and uh yeah it's it's pretty it gets pretty intense and, and you age nine mm -hmm. are beating adults right yeah so there's no age <laughs> brackets or limits or boundaries or stuff so uh, I was, yeah, often competing against people in their 20s, 30s. I, I won the national championships, I think, when I was nine. I think the next youngest guy was 18. Uh, so that was that was nice. But yeah, like there was... Did that involve, like, travelling all over Australia? When it got more serious, yes. 
when yeah like a similar story to how i was in karting really you know started out in sort of club level remote control racing and then did a couple of races like in in new south wales in sydney uh, i think we had one race in brisbane but a lot of it was was still local racing within the state so for australia it's not actually that close you know the closest track to our house was i think 45 minutes or something like that and you know, Brisbane's a two-hour flight away, so it's not, not that local, but it started to get a bit more interstate at the end. But, I mean, compared to what karting ended up being and then obviously now the rest of my career, it, it looks pretty small in comparison. Well, look, with my F1 umbrella on, I'm trying to think, how did that help you prepare for Formula 1? And I suppose the fine motor skills in your hands. A little bit, yes. I think, like, the almost the technical side of things helped at the start because honestly there's probably more things you can change on a remote control car than there are on most race cars um, you know you can change springs on the on the shocks you can change toe camber all the sort of normal things but you've got tire warmers tire additives Damn, tire warmers tire warmers <laughs> uh tire additives so you know you can put stuff on the tires to make them grippier and stuff like that and um, and you did all of that you did all of that because you had to to be quick so, you know, that technical side of things was sort of, I got a, I, let's say, a, I wasn't, wasn't an expert, but I had a, a, you know, a brief understanding of, of what certain setup items did. And, you know, I knew what a racing line was and stuff like that. So when I went into karting, uh, obviously it's very different standing with a remote control car compared to sitting in the car or go-kart. But the idea of a racing line and setup stuff like that, um, you know, I kind of had a, an introduction to it, let's say, of what, what to do. From one Aussie to another, the man that Piastri replaced at McLaren. Daniel Ricciardo's F1 future was uncertain this time last year because he had no place on the 2023 grid. But he made a sensational return halfway through the year when he replaced Nick de Vries at Alpha Tauri. Unfortunately, he then missed five races with a broken hand, but he's now back in Formula One full-time and Daniel can't wait for 2024 to begin, and his goals are clear. Do I still want to be world champion? Yes. Has it been a dream of mine since I was a kid? Yes. But maybe it's just because I've seen Max or whoever else, and they're still waking up the same person. So I, I think it's just that you just take a little bit of pressure off it. It's not going to change me as a human. I know my mum and dad are going to look at me the same way, whether I'm a world champion or whether I'm not. So I still want it. And I still deep down believe I can do it, but it's really not going to change the course of my life. What's the end game here, Dio? Is it the Red Bull racing seat for 25? I'm not even going to put a day or date on it or year, whatever. It's just, that's really the dream. Honestly, to end my career as a Red Bull driver would be perfect. And I say end, not that I'm looking at the end, but if I got back there, then I'll certainly make sure I finish there. One man who could benefit from Ricardo returning to Red Bull one day is Liam Lawson, who took the Honey Badger's Alpha Tauri seat while he was out injured. And talk about first impressions. Lawson finished ahead of teammate Yuki Tsunoda in four of their five races together, and he picked up his first ever F1 points with P9 in Singapore. Liam demonstrated that he belongs on the grid, but it wasn't all plain sailing on his debut. Because I haven't driven that much in Formula 1, I'd never used Drinks Tree before. The first time I tried to use it was Zandvoort, and I had an absolute nightmare. What, sprayed all over your face? Basically, when I went to use the tube, I tried to grab it with, like, with my mouth, and I flicked it up, and it got stuck in my nose. 
So we're like <laughs> five laps in to the race, I think. Your first Grand Prix. First Grand Prix. There's so much going on, right? I'm like learning this car on slick tires. I'd never driven all weekend on slicks. It was the start of a Grand Prix. So there's obviously a lot going on. And I thought, I wasn't even thirsty. I didn't even know why I did it because it was five laps in. So I'm like, I'm just going to give the drink tube a go. And obviously it, it gets stuck in my nose and I can't get it out. So three laps go by, four laps go by. And this and I'm stressing now because I'm thinking, am I going to have to do the whole race with this drink tube stuck in my nose? Thankfully, a safety car came out at, at, quite early on. We had a safety car and I could reach up and basically grab it. And I didn't touch it for the rest of the race. Liam also told me that he ends 2023 feeling a bit unfulfilled because he hasn't quite achieved his dream of a full-time seat in Formula One. But hopefully it's only a matter of time before that happens and he'll have plenty more opportunities to get that drinks tube stuck up his nose. Pierre Gasly can certainly empathise with the patience that's required as a Red Bull junior driver. And the Frenchman returned to F1 Beyond the Grid for the first time in five years in 2023, and we had a lot to catch up on. Since his first appearance on the show back in 2018, he'd lost a seat at Red Bull and he'd become a Grand Prix winner with AlphaTauri. And he's now embracing a new challenge with Alpine. But it was the death of his close friend Antoine Hubert in a Formula 2 crash at Spa in 2019 that's had the biggest impact on his life. Obviously, you can't change life. This is the destiny. And I'm someone very fatalist as well. So, you know, I, I'll believe we got our story and there is very few things we can do to change our destiny. So that has helped me to accept Antoine's life story and to carry that sort of pain and, and grief into something more positive and try to, you know, use the impact he had over my life in a very positive way. And, and that's why I'm also very extremely happy and proud of what we starting with Alpine because I know this was his goal. His goal was to be a Formula 1 driver for Alpine and to be in the position that I am today, I, I'm 100% sure that he's with us and he's looking over us and it's uh, going to make sure that great things happen for us. And for Pierre Gasly, a week after that emotional return to Spa, 12 months following on from the tragic death of Antoine Hubert, now has the ultimate high in Formula One to raise the winner's trophy aloft, the top step of the podium at Monza. And Pierre, there is that lovely moment when you're sat on the podium in Monza after your win, Science and Stroll have long since left and you're sat there looking very pensive. Have I heard you say that you were thinking of Antoine in that moment? I had millions of thoughts in my mind, so it was very tricky to process everything that was going uh, up there. And obviously Antoine was part of it and, and part of the the people that I sought straight away as I crossed the line. But um, it's a moment which you dream of million times as a kid you fall asleep thinking and dreaming okay i want to be a formula one driver i want to win in formula one i want to experience what it's like to be on on top of uh, of the podium after winning a race and this whole celebration is going so fast and as i said after spa it was important for me to just 
learn how to enjoy and take the time to leave the maximum out of the present moment. As they walked out of the podium, I was thinking, this moment is my moment. It's going to end whenever I decide it's going to end. And this is too strong in terms of emotions. I've dreamt about it so many times that I cannot just just go now. Just I was like, just take a few seconds for yourself, sitting down there, COVID times, no one, no one is down the main street. <laughs> it's, you've got these images of Tifosis all over the main street in Monza. I'm probably the only guy who is no one down the podium in Monza winning uh, the Italian Grand Prix with an Italian team. But I just saw, you know what, there's so much to process right now. Just take a moment for yourself and sit down and you know, close your eyes and, and just embrace that moment. In becoming a triple world champion, Max Verstappen joins some F1 legends in the shape of Sir Jack Brabham, Nicky Lauda, Nelson Piquet, Ayrton Senna and Sir Jackie Stewart. And to mark the 50th anniversary of his third title, I sat down with Jackie to reflect on his phenomenal 1973 season. Yet, for all the job satisfaction that came with winning his third title, Jackie's final season was marred by the deaths of several friends and competitors, including his Tyrrell teammate Francois Severe. And somewhat remarkably, he told me that such tragedies never deterred his winning mentality. I think it was just a question of driving to win. I mean, that's what I wanted to do all of the time. Uh, I, I never drove to get championship points. They didn't really matter. Winning is the only thing that matters. I don't know how many times I finished second. I have no idea how many times I finished on a podium. That doesn't count. I know how many times I've won, but winning is what it is. That's the end of the job. Let's talk about the Dutch Grand Prix. Emerson crashed during practice, damaging his foot. He qualified 16th and then had to retire from the race unable to continue because of the pain. You won that race. Do you feel that was a turning point? No, I don't think so. It was just another race for me. It wasn't a nice race. That was the one, that wasn't it, that we, the young driver had died, and we all saw that. Well, Jackie, how difficult was that? We're talking about Roger Williamson, who burned to death in the Dutch Grand Prix. You won that race. How difficult was it for you to continue driving? It wasn't. It was just you kept going. You know, it's a, it's a heartless thing to say. But if they had put a red flag out, we would have stopped. But the organisers didn't know any better. They really didn't have any knowledge of what they should be doing. It was another generation, completely. They were way behind themselves. And the same things happened to Pierce Courage and the same thing happened to uh, Joe Slesser. The race should always have had stopped. But we were told that the race continued, so you continued. You just, for some reason, you block that off. I was totally unaffected by that accident or those accidents. You could say that's a terrible thing, being overly unfair to the families and so forth, and it's true. But the wives were at the other end, so Helen was looking after Piers's wife and having to go and take their clothing from the hotel so that she didn't have to go back to the same room. The girls went through hell. 
on that. But the racing driver, for whatever reason, and I think if anybody was here talking about it right now, they would say the same as me. You just kept on driving. So were you surprised when you heard after the race that David Purley had stopped and tried to put out the flames on Roger's car? We saw him waving us down. We saw him getting into the centre of the track sometimes and trying to wave us down. But the officials weren't telling us that. So we continued. I love speaking to the legends of F1's history on this podcast. Jackie is one of the greatest drivers ever to steer a Formula One car. And so is Alain Prost, who this season celebrated 30 years since winning his fourth and final world title. In 1993, Alain was racing for Williams, who at the time were producing the best cars on the grid. But Prost found the FW15 surprisingly difficult to drive, and he found the new age of computer-aided setup unusual. He was also racing against his long-term foe, Ayrton Senna, and halfway through the year, he learned that Williams had signed Senna for the following year, something that Prost was very unhappy about. So while 1993 might have been a victorious year for Prost, it wasn't always a happy one. The old season was really difficult, you know, because I don't want to go through all the episodes about the season, but uh, I never felt felt good. Obviously, when uh, when you win a race with uh, Williams at the time, it's normal. When you lose a race, you're stupid. And uh, uh, it's not exactly what a racing driver is aiming for. You know, you need to have a sort of... uh, uh, objective situation and uh, that was not a very nice season and when we started to have the problem of uh, when Frank came to me and said that I have a pressure from Renault because they want me to take Ayrton I know that we have a contract and uh, I said shit you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that that's not the best way you know to I had a two-year contract and I know I was very supported by Patrick and Van Adrian and uh, but, you know, we, we, we were not in the sportive side, you know, and uh, I said, you know, I want to fight against Ayrton. No problem, you know, on the track, you know, no problem, but not as a teammate, so I cannot accept that. That is why the old 93 season at the end was not, uh, not my best on the human side. Let's talk about the competitive side, first of all, because it seems to me 1993 was the first time in your career in which you'd gone into the season expecting and expected to dominate. How did that feel and how did it change your approach? It changed because of the, the perception of the people outside. Because for you, when you're a racing driver, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, ask uh, Max today because he has a dominating car. I mean, he's not going to change anything. He's going to try to win all the races he can and win the championship. And uh, for me, it was, it was the same. It was uh, a new technology. It was uh, a new car a new way of uh, setting up the car or even working with the engineers, which was not my best, uh, you know, my favorite uh, car uh, in terms of, uh, I used to do more or less everything by myself with working with the engineers and uh, with the active car, it was more done by the engineers working on the computer, you know, of, uh, working on suspension. So that, that is maybe the biggest problem. What Alain said about the pressure of expectation when you're driving the fastest car is very interesting. It's certainly something that Max Verstappen had to deal with in 2023. Will he have to contend with it again in 2024? This is an historic moment. Heinz Harald Frentzen clears the chicane. Lines 
up the last corner. And Jordan and Hightower Frenson win, win, win in France. Magnificent. Germany's Heinz-Harald Frentzen was a cult hero for many F1 fans in the 1990s. He was funny, he was irreverent, and he was very fast. The three-time Grand Prix winner came close to winning the world title with Jordan in 1999, and he has many fascinating stories from his 10 seasons in F1, including how he, Carl Wendlinger, and Michael Schumacher got along when they were members of the Mercedes Young Driver program. Michael was really motivated, not only being fast on the track, but when we went out for playing billiard, I couldn't get any decent conversation with him because he was so focused on beating me and Carl that we couldn't make any jokes, you know. And I said one day, come on, Michael, just give it a break. Just talk of something else instead of always competing each other, you know. He had his moments where when he, when he had a distance to his job or, or, or let's say the competitiveness, then he was a really funny bloke, yeah. And when you got into Formula One in 1994, Michael Schumacher was already a race winner. Was he pleased for you that you'd made it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember he wanted to know everything when I did my first set at Sauber. In 93, Peter Sauber called me. I was racing in Japan and asked me if I would like to do the test. And I said, of course, yeah. So I went to Mugello and did the test with Sauber. And Michael was, I found out later, the guy said, he was ringing all the time, calling Peter or calling a journalist. What is he doing? What's that? And this is that. He really was interested to know what, uh, what's happening because I think he was very happy that uh, finally I, I did make it as well. Yeah. And are you surprised, knowing Michael how you did when he was younger, are you surprised at the amount of success he went on to have? I mean, after he did, uh, he was surprising everybody when he went to Jordan in Spa. No, he, he did such a cool impact yeah, in Formula One. And shortly after at Benetton, when he was then immediately finishing in the, on the podium, it was giving all of us, you know, Carl and me, uh, a big push to know, listen... We if he racing, can do that, so can I. Yeah, more or less, yeah. It was really a big difference. And I think the biggest help Michael did for all of us at the end helped me and, and Carl as well, is that Flavio Biritore giving him a chance in Formula One at those days, experienced drivers was more valuable than young drivers. It was so difficult. Look at the age, you know, the, the guys in the 90s, in the 80s and the 90s, they were mostly experienced guys. The team bosses at those days, they didn't like to have young drivers that crash the car because it was very expensive and it was the habit to have experienced driver. So putting a young driver in, in a Formula One team was really like a big risk for the teams. And Michael opened the door for all the young drivers. Opened the door for me at the end because Peter Sauber obviously saw, look, he saw what Michael did and I did and Carl Wendlinger did in, in Mercedes, Sauber Mercedes times. That's why also Peter then said, if Michael is doing such a good job, I have to call Franzen. Heinz Harald's race engineer at Jordan was Sam Michael who later became technical director at Williams and then sporting director at McLaren. During his time in the sport, Sam worked with world champions like Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button and Nico Rosberg. So I had to ask him, who was the fastest driver he worked with? Lewis Hamilton and Heinz Harald Frentzen. Everyone's heard of Lewis, not as many people have heard of Frentzen, but if you're talking about pure natural driving talent, uh, Lewis and Heinz for sure. 
just the, the things that you saw them do in tricky circumstances, extract value and lap time out of cars that they had no business doing and compared to their teammates and just everything stacked up. Let's talk about Heinz then. If he had this speed that you're talking about, why didn't he achieve more in his Formula One career? There's a lot of things that make up a driver and their, their package. It's not only their natural driving ability, it's their ability to communicate with people and work in, inside a team, the ability to uh, manage your emotions and understand when it's a good time to be emotional and when it's not. There's also, as I said, the teamwork, you know, working with mechanics and engineers around you and extracting the most from them. And all those things stack up to make a total driver. And although I never worked with him, you'd have to look at someone like Michael, because he was on the opposite side of the fence. He was pretty much ticking all the boxes in that regard. In their early years, it was Michael and Heinz and, and Wendlinger, who were the sort of three main superstars out, out of the Mercedes sports car program. Uh, but obviously, one of them went on to become a seven-time world champion. And the fact that Heinz didn't achieve that, there's, probably, there's lots of other factors that add up to that mm. result, if you like. Both Heinz Harold Frensen and Sam Michael know what it's like to win with Williams, a feeling that the team hasn't experienced since the Spanish Grand Prix in 2012. But having finished last in the constructors' standings in four of the previous five years, Williams' new team principal James Valls has overseen a steady improvement in 2023 as they secured seventh place. I spoke to James after Alex Albon had secured a mighty P7 in Canada, which turned out to be his and the team's joint best finish of the season. There's no ego. He's a funny chap. But I called him yesterday to explain to him that was a driver of champions. And I've, I've worked with, with a good number of them. And it really was. He didn't put a foot wrong at the point where he's under pressure from four incredibly fast charging cars behind on tyres that were much better state than his. And actually some of the work he was doing on repositioning his car on exit of 10 and a few other corners was very clever. And he recognises that. He knows that. He's, he's obviously... Uh, not someone that's going to go and, and boast about it to the world. But for me, that was a driver of champions that he did. Where he sits is this. He, he's definitely bringing the car to the limit of its performance, which is what you're looking for out of a driver. I think he's very underrated, and I'm incredibly happy that he's here within our organisation today and here for a long time. Would you consider building the future of this team around Alex? Yes, yeah, I would. He's got leadership qualities to him. There's, there's areas where he and I talk about uh, where I think he can do do more in certain areas. But... He's got what it takes to bring us forward as an organisation. As I said, for certainly the, the future from where I am at the moment, I hope he's very much a part of it. And James, if you succeed in taking Williams back to the front of Formula One, will that be your greatest achievement? I think so, yeah. That's why I'm here. It's something that you can look back on with pride. Another team principal in his first year with a new team was Fred Vasseur at Ferrari, the only outfit to beat Red Bull in 2023. Carlos Sainz, tactical brilliance. Carlos Sainz, the winner of the Singapore Grand Prix. And P1, baby, P1. Ah! What a mega job you did there. What a smart race. You know what? This is my first smooth operation in Ferrari. Ferrari took full advantage of Red Bull's struggles in Singapore as Carlos Sainz took the team's first victory under Fred. Despite that win, Ferrari are still far from where they want to be after another year of inconsistency saw them finish third behind Mercedes in the constructor standings. 
And with this job being the biggest challenge of Fred's career to date, he's well aware of the weight of expectation on his shoulders. We have enough pressure and I don't need uh, someone else to put pressure on myself, that uh, I'm quite exigent with myself and uh, what I want to do, what I want to achieve, and I'm putting enough pressure on me that I don't need to have someone else or something else. And, uh, and the, I think the pressure of the, of the story and the past, you can feel it each time that you are doing something in Maranello and that uh, all the emotion around, all the passion around, all the, the you go to the restaurant, everybody's jumping on you, that you, you can feel that it's the, the, the main topic. And that, uh, but I think we have enough pressure and uh, the, to avoid to think too much about this. The different cultures, you know, you've worked for a team based in England at Renault. You've obviously been in Switzerland with Alfa Romeo. Just how and where is Ferrari different? I would say that the main difference is the passion into the team and around the team. That everything is uh, a bit more or exaggerating. It means that uh, as everywhere and as in every single race team, uh, you have a pendant, and I think at Ferrari, the up are very high and the down are very low. And my job is to calm down the exaggeration, to try to stay a bit more consistent and uh, in the approach. And uh, I think it's probably the main, the biggest difference between the, the teams, that uh, when you join Ferrari, it's a bit different. Everybody is much more emotional. The press is much more emotional. The team members are more emotional. And I think part of my game and part of my job is to try to be a, a bit more consistent. But one of Ferrari's strengths as well is its passion. Yeah, no, sure, sure, sure. That uh, I remember perfectly when we, we were supposed to bring the upgrade for Budapest and then we pushed to get it for UK. And uh, as a challenge, I told them that I would like to get it for Spielberg, I think. But honestly, it was a joke. <laughs> and they made it, but they worked like hell 24-7, blah, 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 blah. And, and this as a feeling is mega, that the passion on this, that the fact that everybody can work night and day to deliver something, is a, it's, it's a mega good feeling. Can you talk us through the moment when you got the call from Ferrari? Who first made contact with you? Where were you? What were you doing? It was just after Abu Dhabi last year was a bit strange feeling because everybody spoke about it during Abu Dhabi uh, weekend, but it was not the case. That <laughs> and the week after that, we had the first discussion. I didn't want to be too emotional because when you are doing this job, and I am doing this job for 32 or 33 years, for sure to have the possibility to join Ferrari as a team principal, it's somehow not the pinnacle, but somehow... Uh, the biggest challenge, let's say. The pinnacle is if you win with Ferrari, that it's a bit different. When you play tennis, you want to do Wimbledon. When you, you, when you are doing my job to be at the team principal of Ferrari, for sure, it's what you want to do. Few people in the F1 paddock know Fred Vasseur better than Charles Leclerc. They worked together in the sport's junior categories, then again at Alfa Romeo in 2018, and they were reunited at Ferrari in 2023. Charles was our first guest of the season. When we spoke back in Bahrain, he was confident of fighting for the championship. Of course, it didn't turn out that way. But we also spoke about what he does to take his mind off racing. And I brought along a surprise so Charles could show off another of his talents. Charles, you can yes. see just behind you, 
We have yes. a Steinway. No, you no, no, no. Don't <laughs> lie. <laughs> this is not a Steinway. This is a mini piano. Can I tell you why I've I've brought that? Because last time you were on the show, we we were having a bit of fun about you playing the piano, and I I said to you, oh. Charles, I don't believe you play the piano that well. And you said, bring a <laughs> piano to the next race and I will prove that I can play the piano. Now, it's not quite the next race and it's not really... And it's not really a piano. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm going to try my best. Okay, let's, can you play something? I can try. The piano is too short for this. Uh, let me try. What, what, are you, what, what are you trying to play? Uh, well, the one I normally play, I, I can just improvise with what I have here. So. We're, all, we're also missing a key, which is a bit unfortunate. Is that an important one? Uh, I can still <laughs> get to it, but it's much more difficult. But it's fine, I won't. So it's it's beautiful. Thank you very much <laughs> for being nice to me. So next year, next year, you want a you, Steinway? You want a I, grand I want, piano? I want a real piano, <laughs> and I will I will play. Now look, being serious, uh, I know I am being serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for people who can't obviously can't see you playing, uh, you looked very comfortable with it. You clearly do play. So I need to eat my words from last time. Can I just ask you about the piano? What does it do for you? Why do you play music? I love it because it helps me not thinking about anything else than what I do at that moment, which is play piano, play music. It helps me to disconnect from everything else. And uh, especially in a season where things get sometimes tough, but even if they don't get tough, even if they are very happy and everything is going well on track, I think it's great disconnecting from, from racing sometimes. And um, piano is the best way that I found to, uh, for me to think about something else and, and relax myself. I think I'll bring a guitar next time. After a disappointing 2023, I wonder how much of the winter Charles will spend on the piano taking his mind off racing. With every season that Ferrari don't win, the pressure on the red team gets that little bit higher. Giancarlo Fisichella also knows exactly what it means to represent Ferrari. The Italian fulfilled a lifelong dream when he ended his F1 career with the Scuderia, replacing the injured Felipe Massa for the final five races of 2009. But before making his debut in Ferrari's home race at Monza, Fisichella took a sensational pole position with Force India at the previous Grand Prix in Belgium. In 2009, the new car was uh, better than the year before. At the beginning of the season, we were struggling, but was better. And suddenly, in a spa, with a new package, the new aerodynamics package, the car was completely different. It was a completely another car. And uh, straight away, Saturday morning, when I put it on, I was so quick. I said, hey, guys, we can score uh, points tomorrow. We can... Maybe, I say, maybe getting top 10 for the qualifying session. Got pole position. Pole position for the Belgian Grand Prix, mate. Pole position. What's the pusher, mate? Yeah, P1, mate. Not bad, not bad. Nobody expects to be on pole. 
And uh, most of the people, if you remember, in that time there was uh, the, the, the Q3, you need to put the, the fuel for the first part of the race. And the, most of the people, they were thinking, Fisichella uh, will do one or two laps and then uh, we will be at the box to, to refuel his car. Uh, it was not like that. I did uh, the same amount of lap of, uh, of the others. We were extremely quick. I could win the, the race. Unfortunately, after the first start, uh, we had a uh, safety car. And uh, after the safety car, Kimi uh, overtook me because he had uh, the, the curse. And in Fort India, there wasn't. So uh, for a few seconds, uh, he used the, the extra power and he overtook me. Started sixth. Kerr's button had him into second, despite the safety car and despite the close attention of Giancarlo Fisichella, who may or may not be his teammate at Monza in two weeks. Here comes Kimi Raikkonen. He's not won since 2008 in Spain, but he's done it. Kimi Raikkonen wins for Ferrari in Belgium. Four times winner, but what about the result for Force India? Their 31st race, and they pick up their first points, and it's a podium as well. Giancarlo Fisichella. And I followed him for uh, the world race. The world race, I was one second behind him. It was difficult to catch him at the exit of the corner because he was using the cares. Uh, I was uh, exactly with the same pace, exactly with the same strategy. I finished second uh, just behind him. Uh, but uh, this result was uh, unexpected. Nobody was thinking about it uh, before the start of the race. How good was that pole lap? Would you say of your four poles, that was the best lap? Yeah, well, that was the best lap because uh, I did a, a perfect lap, just uh, one whisping at uh, the exit of the turn one and turn eight. But was uh, was an amazing lap, yeah. Sometimes I go on, on YouTube and I watch it. <laughs> Giancarlo had his day of days with Force India, a team that has been through several rebrands in recent years. Today, Team Silverstone is Aston Martin. Owner Lawrence Stroll has built a new state-of-the-art factory. They've hired some great people from around the paddock, and the results have been sensational. Please welcome back to the Formula One podium for the 99th time, Fernando Alonso, who weaves across the line and celebrates a dream debut with Aston Martin. Yes, what you have done, guys. I'm so proud of you. Dan Fallows getting a pat on the back. And congratulations from Mike Crack, the team principal. It's Dan Fallows and his technical team that have built a car that might just make people think that Alonso, for once, has chosen the right team to go to at the right time. With Fernando Alonso as the team's lead driver, Aston have enjoyed their most successful year ever, with 280 points and eight podiums. Technical director Dan Fellows, who was previously head of aerodynamics at Red Bull, explained why the 23 car was so much stronger than its predecessor. I mean, it's, it is better in almost every aspect, really. You know, we had an opportunity last year to sort of look over the, the entire car, I actually don't think AMR 22 was a bad car in any respects, particularly once we developed it during the year. But there were there were several things that were not in the way that the team would have liked, you know, because for various reasons, there were two aerodynamic concepts, which meant that a lot of the kind of internal packaging, a lot of the engineering design that would have gone into a, a car normally had to be sort of curtailed to some extent. And that meant the car just wasn't what it had the potential to be, I think, as a, as a brand new concept for a new set of regulations. So this is probably really the car that AMR22 should have been. 
or certainly a development on that. And the result is the car we have now. And it's, from my point of view, night and day better compared to MR22. What did you expect when you came here? Because you've been in senior positions at Red Bull for, what, more than 15 years. This team has a reputation for being thrifty, for being small. I mean, what were your expectations? I knew it would be smaller, but actually now, because of the, you know, there's a fairly sort of aggressive growth strategy for this team, a lot of which had happened before I got here. So there are a lot of people in place compared to what I'm used to as well. So that wasn't necessarily true, but I, I did expect it to be smaller, I think. But also, I think inevitably, maybe it's a slight arrogance about coming from a team that is at the, you know, the front of the grid that you sort of imagine that people do things not in a correct way or they're slightly behind or some of the technology is slightly behind. And there are definitely things that we can still do better. But what I was really surprised about is the talent, the overall level of, and just the, the level that people are operating at. You know, it is no different from a top team. So the ingredients of what makes a team well, that's a, I mean, it's a mystery. Who knows what makes a team win races and championships? But, but I think, you know, if one of those ingredients is a lot of passionate, talented people who are working hard, well, this team absolutely has it. That's something I should have expected because I think their past performance has, has shown that they can compete at, you know, at quite an extraordinary level, really, given their, their budgetary situation. But I think that was a shock, to be honest. You know, a really, really pleasant surprise, as you can imagine. How would you describe the Alonso factor? What's uh, well, he got? What's uh, that guy got? As right, right from day one, you know, he's just uh, come in like a sort of, you know, like a Tasmanian devil, and, yeah. <laughs> and we've we've all just sort of kind of reacted to it. It's um, it's a great boost for us as a team. You know, we, last year was a very difficult year, and and all of these things that have helped to, to lift the team to bring that sort of new energy, and he's he's a big part of that. While Aston Martin made a big leap forwards in 2023, you can't really say the same of Mercedes. Even though they finished second in the Constructors' Championship, just ahead of Ferrari. They want to be world champions. Yet, for the first time since 2011, Mercedes ended the year winless. George Russell was unable to reach the levels he'd attained during his first season with Merck and was beaten by teammate Lewis Hamilton in the driver's standings. But George has had a lot of bad luck this year. And remember when he was fighting for a dramatic win in Singapore, only to end up in the barriers on the final lap. But he did finish the year with a podium in Abu Dhabi, and he seems to be in a strong place mentally. Probably enjoying life a bit more. I listened to a podcast from Fernando where he said that if he could change one thing in his career, he wished he enjoyed the moment more often when he was younger. I think that sort of resonated with me because, you know, I'm living my dream here, but I'm so dedicated. I feel like I'm a a true professional. I I look at every single detail. I I give it my everything. And sometimes you forget to enjoy it and to enjoy the moment with the the people around you, enjoy the places you're going to, smile, not just constantly be this 120% serious guy focusing on every single detail. And it doesn't mean that I'm any less professional now. But it's just that I'm probably enjoying my life more, my surroundings, the people who I have at home, my living situation. I'm just in a much happier place. I'm learning new things that I've never would have dreamt of doing before. So, yeah, just all in all in a, in a good place. Now, you say you're learning new things. And I wanted to ask you about the summer break. A lot of water sports. And you turned up in Zanvoort with a little scar on your <laughs> wrist. I was talking with Toto before the break and I said, you know, I want to try this and try that. And 
Toto's one who does a lot of activities, but I think he always, like, when it comes to... He sort of lets Lewis get away with it, but when it comes to me, he's like, no, you've got to be careful of this. And, you know, if you jump on that foil board, you know, really good chance of hurting yourself. If you go skiing, you know, is you know, really, really good chance of hurting yourself. And, he, and he's totally right. But I just sort of had a bit of a mentality that I can't wrap myself up in, in bubble wrap. We're learning to free dive together at the moment. We actually went with, with Lewis as well on our, on our first experience into the water. And it's probably the best disconnection I've, I've ever had from life. And you're just solely focused on your breathing, on the surroundings, uh, on the sea life. And, and it's really beautiful. And, I, and I, I just really, really enjoy it. So, And it got me thinking because in the race car, you're strapped in, you've got the belt around your waist, around your crotch, over your shoulders. You can't really breathe uh, because the belts are so tight. You can't take those deep breaths and our heart rate is running through the roof from the heat inside the cockpit, the physicality of driving the car, the, the mental fatigue. And I'm learning by doing these additional activities. You know, you, you keep your senses alive. They always say like a Formula One car, the best sensor is, is the driver. And I can feel a car because of the senses through my arms, through my bottom, through my back, through my legs. You feel the G-force, you feel the tires moving. And that is surely going to degrade at some point those senses you know you're not going to be razor sharp until the day you die and i'm sure by doing these other activities it definitely keeps your your senses active we'll leave it there for our best of 2023 show although the title's a little bit misleading because i've loved speaking to all of my guests this year all 40 of them if there are any episodes you missed, or if you'd like to see who else I've spoken to over the last six seasons of the show, why not delve into our archive over the winter months? I'd also love to hear from you. Tell me who your favourite guest of 2023 has been, and who you'd like to hear from in 2024. All suggestions are welcome. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on X, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And if you've enjoyed the show this year, please leave us a rating and a review on your podcast app. We love reading them. Thank you for listening this year. We've loved your company. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a happy new year. I'll be back with more great guests from the world of Formula One in February. Until then, keep it flat out. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios.